You're listening to Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas. You're listening to Confidential Brief live in Johannesburg on 101.9 FM, streaming worldwide on the Chai FM website. In studio with me today is David Jacobs. He is a expert in ID theft as well as an expert in fingerprinting. David, welcome to the show. Hello, Chad. David, before we delve into the scourge of identity theft, which has impacted on so many people in the past, etc., let's start and talk about you. How did you become involved in this field? What is your trade? How did you how did you start a career in law enforcement? Um, in 1987, I joined the South African Police Force and um, started to be trained as a fingerprint specialist. I did a Quite a lot of uh, courses in in the police regarding fingerprints, and also that the um, expert course for field forensic field experts to go and do criminal cases that's in the field. Um, looking at fingerprints, I think from there on, it's still stuck with me, especially what it presents that it really defines a person's identity, because it links your body to the identity that you've been given. And that in DNA is basically the only two um, body parts that you have of stuff that you the biometrics that you could use to verify a person's identity 100% in a court of law. Um, yeah, that's where it ended up in me just excelling in the, in the identity management um, arena. So before we get to how your fingerprints can save you from identity theft, let's go back to why fingerprints have been used all the years to successfully close cases. What is the history of fingerprints and are are they to be trusted? According to me, and this is my personal opinion, yes, I believe it is trusted. A lot of people have said, yeah, you might get two fingerprints that are similar to, to, to the same or different people. I've never found it. I've looked at a approximately a million, two million fingerprints in my life. I've never seen the same, same one twice. Um, fingerprints goes back to the end of the 1800s, 1890s, around there, and it started to become more usable um, with your different types of people that was doing research on it, Edward Henry and all those type of guys. And they started to see the value in it in linking the fingerprint to the a crime scene, for instance, because there's another principle that's very, very important in crime. It's called the low-card principle. That is where you touch something, for instance, and you take your finger away. You've left pieces of your, your, your imprint there, sweat and all that, and you've taken dust with you. It's like a blue and red card colliding. Some of the blue cars paint will be on the red car and the red cars paint. That's the low-card principle. And that's where it comes into play with fingerprints for me is that if you've done committed a crime and you're at the scene that that most probably will be there if you can find it that proves that you were there um and that's quite quite a good evidence collection and evidence prevention uh evidence uh, uh, providing tool but now for somebody like you in the 1980s being a police officer before this massive surge in cyber related apps etc it must have been very tedious for you you would physically have to compare fingerprints that you've taken from the scene of a crime to literally thousands if not millions of cards that contained perhaps suspects fingerprints or home affairs fingerprints 
Yeah, that was the manual search. Obviously, it's changed now in the, in the South African police force and the police forces broadly, where they use automated fingerprint identification systems, or APHIS in short. In those years, you had to classify the fingerprint. The fingerprint comes in different patterns. You classify the pattern, and then when you've got the pattern, you classify what's inside the pattern, the ridges. You trace it or you count it. It depends on what type of pattern you have. And that, at the end of the day, gets a specific type of classification. So you can use that classification and obviously go search for all the files that's got similar classifications and you can broaden it and, and hopefully somebody is already uh, being arrested and you can find that. So previous convictions obviously does make sense. Home affairs, we never used the criminal system part into the home affairs. We assisted home affairs basically whenever they needed to do fingerprint or, or was behind with it or when we had to do basically a search on deceased identities that was not in the criminal database. Now, everybody in South Africa is so conditioned to fingerprints being used to identify criminals based on all these CSI-type television programs. Is all of this true, what we see, that you can you can seal a, po- a portion of perhaps a body or an item that you wouldn't normally be able to get a fingerprint off, heat up something like superglue, and it will be able to settle on, on, on what could be um, residue left from a human and identify fingerprints? Yeah, well, obviously there's different sorts of, of methods that you can use to attain an image, a latent print. It's called the latent print because it's hidden from the from the normal sight of eye. So you've got to search for where the perpetrator was. Most probably, you've actually got to be a perpetrator to understand where they could have been, where they could have touched, where they could have left anything. Um, I'm not going to talk about DNA, so that's not my field of expertise. But with fingerprints, you can use different kinds of methods of obviously brushing it with different kinds of powders. You've got reagents that you can use to, to bring up the fingerprint, take pictures of it or uh, uh, photographic images of it. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of different ways to find these images and to collect that. But that's where it's very important when you collect it, any evidence, and this is, I think, with the identity management solutions or identity theft and all that, when you collect that evidence, you've got to treat it according to forensic protocol. So the chain of custody of electing uh, or uh, finding a, a fingerprint starts where you find it and where you collect it. And from there on in the process, right, you present it in a court of law. That's where the forensic part comes into play. Any break in that chain of custody, like in the OS, OSS um, Simpson case in America, can nullify the whole case. So it's very important that the forensic protocol has got to be in place from the beginning, right through to the testif- testifying part, um, that's the most important part of collecting the evidence, that you can then take it, identify a person or to see if it's the same person, and then to take it to court to present it that this is the real person. So you must have had some battles in court with defense attorneys trying to prove that the chain of evidence had somehow been compromised and that fingerprint found at the scene, although it was their clients, was not necessarily from the murder or from the theft. Well, I didn't actually have a lot of those, but I, I did have guys asking me about the fingerprints, and then you've just got to bring your expert opinion into it. Uh, with the chain of custody part, yes, sometimes it does happen, but obviously if you're running the, a tight ship and you're doing it correctly, because it's important in the way that I was trained initially in the 80s, was really up to superior standards, and it enforced everything that you knew 
was there. Everything that you were trained was at the best optimum level. So, yes, the chain of custody and all that was always in place. But obviously the questions for other, other guys was most pertinent, and they could prove it. Then you've got to bring in the people from whom you received it and whom you handed over to. Any uh, big cases that we may have read about in the late 80s and 90s that you were involved in where the fingerprints perhaps um, proved conclusively that a suspect that was later sentenced was at the scene? Uh, I don't know if you will even remember. It's a couple of cases, yes, obviously housebreaking and then up to couple of um, rape cases and one or two murder cases, but I mean, I, could, I can't even remember the names of that. So it's a bit odd. And in your opinion, is fingerprint still a very good tool in eliminating suspects as well as identifying suspects in today's um, new cyber age of crime investigation? I believe that if it was collected correctly, yes, it is. But if it's not being collected correctly, then it's obviously worthless. So, yes, it is still there. You can prove the person's identity if you've got the fingerprints collected correctly and presented correctly. I'm chatting to David Jacobs. We're talking all about fingerprints. Identity theft is coming up straight after the break. You're listening to Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas. Have you been a victim of identity theft? Do you have an opinion on identity theft? Do you suspect somebody you know may have been a victim of identity theft? Then WhatsApp us. I want to hear all about it. 061-895-1019 or SMS us on 34519. Your questions will be answered by our in-house expert today, David Jacobs, who has spent four decades in this industry. David, let's talk about ID theft. It's a growing phenomenon in South Africa. My understanding and interpretation of ID theft is somebody breaks into my car, they steal my wallet, they've got my ID, they run a check, they find that I've got a good credit profile, they replace my picture in my ID book. The next thing I know, I've got a 100 different furniture companies phoning me for money because somebody's gone and used my identity. Am I right? Am I wrong? Am I being too simplistic? No, you're correct there that um, whenever somebody's going through a rubbish dump or wherever they find information regarding somebody, to link that information to the person is the most important part. Um, If you think about ID theft or ID duplication, it's been happening for hundreds of years where people just put on a mask and they look like somebody else. And even in Shakespeare's um, uh, shows that he had on the stage, everything there, it's, it's a long thing going already. But the identity theft in the world is busy changing big time because of obviously the question that you asked about the electronic age. Let's put it into that scenario. From the late 80s, 90s up till now, it's been increasing drastically. Um, if you look at the amount of people whose identity has been stolen, if you look in America alone, it started off a couple of years ago. They reckoned there was 9 million people's identity stolen. It's standing today at about 16 plus. But the biggest problem is that even if you're protecting your stuff that you have, your ID number, your bank details and all that, it's available on the Internet. The guys that's working in this environment, the syndicates that does the identity theft, makes up about 3 to 5% of the whole scenario regarding identity theft and the crimes that comes out of that. Um, so they are there looking for specific information about you, and it's easy to find. Um, 
I tell you, there's, there's this big harvesting that's happening. That's how I see it. All these companies that's being hacked for the data and all that. It's harvesting of our identities. In America, you've got Equifax. 150-odd million people's information was stolen. In South Africa, recently, Liberty. All that stuff is data that's being used and harvested to create something else. So the, a, a, a fraudster who wants to use an identity doesn't necessarily need to physically get hold of something tangible that I have. Like with the Marriott hack, they can get all that information they need by hacking an organization. Now, you mentioned a huge figure between 9 and 12 billion. So I'm assuming, um, because that's more people that are alive, I'm assuming they're also using dead people's identities to, to further their, their, their fraudulent activities. Yeah, if you're looking at the seized identities and the fraud that spills out of that, in, in South Africa, obviously we've got, uh, funeral policies and all that that's, people take out and they can obviously claim against, let's say, 5,000 rand per claim. So if you create, uh, say policies, 100 policies per month or, or 50 policies for that matter, and you just look at the morgues where people pass away and you've got to collect the data that's there, you can actually register a corpse for different identities as much times, as many times as you want. And this has been happening. So they claim against the funeral uh, policies and I think there's big losses that's being incurred in, in the insurance industry towards that. Deceased identities is, is a very big plaything to create a new identity. If I want to be a creditworthy person, a real person, I can go look at a person that was the same age as, as what I am and passed away on, at the age of two to five years old. Collect that information, create a new identity, and it's a legit identity. So it's true when we see these fraudsters in the movies going to a cemetery and looking for somebody that died round about the same time they would have been three or four, that would be the same age as them. They'll go find that person's birth certificate and they'll then use that birth certificate to now create an identity that, that as if that person was still living. It does happen, yes. That must be so sad for the families of that deceased child, having 20, 30 years later a debt collector knocking on their door claiming that their child is in debt, knowing full well that their child's been dead all these years, and not realizing that fraudsters will sink to any level to be able to fulfill their, their fraudulent needs. No, that's true. I can just imagine what what the scenario will be if you find out suddenly that somebody that's been deceased for the last 30, 40 years is currently being credited active. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a huge amount. I think that if you're looking at the identity theft market, that's the one part. But what the crimes is related to that, why they collect the identities to commit certain crimes. You're looking at some of the most hideous crimes that these, human trafficking. I mean, like there's millions of people that slaves because of their identities that's been stolen. You're looking at money laundering. They reckon that money laundering makes up globally between 2 to 3% of the global GDP. That's what the amount of money laundering. You're looking at creating the synthetic identities. Obviously, synthetic identities is people that does not even exist. Um, normal cybercrime. If you look at where cybercrime actually starts, it starts with an identity. Somebody that's got access to a system or a laptop or that, it starts with identity theft. When you've got that correct to prevent that, then the cybercrime might get down. Um, there's such an amount of different type of crimes that flows out of this identity theft. The most prevalent in South Africa would obviously be 
financial. People want to steal an identity or obtain an identity that is credit worthy so that they can open a cell phone contract and get something that they can then sell on, the handset. So I find that there's a lot of identity taking place with cell phone shops, for example, where people are opening contracts, high-level contracts, so that they can get those phones and then sell those phones on. Then, of course, it's opening of accounts or getting loans, etc. Where do you find, in your expertise, the most prevalence of identity theft being used in a crime, and what is that crime? Well, obviously, like I just mentioned, the financial crime is obviously the biggest one. Um, but there's obviously ways, like exactly as you explained with the, uh, the mobile industry, where people, I'm sitting here and somebody's buying phones on my name, and the next day it's available to be sold in India. That's just how quick these guys work. They've got access to obviously the credit bureaus, how to create, they create a nice clean uh, profile, and they can do the shopping that they want, buy whatever they want. So if you're looking at uh, other crimes, terrorism funding, big problem. There's lots of people that's dying due to this because they, they can hide this funding under anonymous names, somebody that doesn't even exist or exists, but it's such a different types of names that you can't trace it back to who it is. Now, how far do you think they go in respect of hiding their identity or maybe even assuming that identity? You've hit on some key aspects that um, it can be used for terror, but what about money laundering? Do we have instances where people have assumed another identity, maybe perhaps gone to another country, set up a Ponzi scheme and laundered a lot of money, and it turns out that that person doesn't even exist? There's There's been a recent case about a chap going by the name of Stuart Twain who was supposedly behind BTC Global, one of the Bitcoin exchanges. Turns out this person never, ever existed. Exactly. Now, money laundering is one of the biggest problems because money laundering actually happens due to other criminal activities um, like human trafficking and terrorism funding, whatever. So the money is being laundered um, through systems, banks, insurance companies, and whatever Ponzi schemes, as you mentioned as well. The thing is that most of the financial institutions have got great tools in place to track the money that's inside their operation. But they've got no tools to, to say who's the person that put the money into the system and who's ex- extracting it on the other side. There's no deterrent on that because the systems that they use to verify that person's authenticity has already been corrupted. So in essence, they don't know who it is. They'll never find that person unless they start doing proactive solutions towards that. We're going towards the halfway mark, which means we're going to be playing some music. Today we're going to be playing my, my all-time favorite. Kathy's going to most probably shriek at me. We're going to be playing Burnout by C4 Hot 6 Mabuse. And the reason we're playing it today is I heard a new version of this in the car on the way here today. And it absolutely upset me that such a classic, brilliant song could be slaughtered. While you're listening to the song, I want you to send us your stories about uh, identity theft. You can WhatsApp us on 061-895-1019 or you can SMS us on 34519. You're listening to Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas. We're in conversation with David Jacobs, and we're talking about identity theft and how prevalent it is. 
But before we went on air today, Dalvin was telling me about something new, and that's called synthetic IDs. Now, living in this the cyber age, nothing comes as a surprise. So I'm going to let David explain to us what is synthetic identity fraud and how would that be um, a threat to financial institutions, etc. Yeah, well, it's, it's it's like you say, it's something new, but new it's a couple of years already, and especially of the electronic age that allows the syndicates and crime crime guys to, to basically harvest identities, harvest information. Uh, if you think about it, if you're harvesting 150 million people per six months, that's a lot of people that you can actually start creating different identities. The identity does not belong to any human being. So what they do is they look into systems, solutions, especially identity solutions, uh, identity protection, management solutions, where they then can register the person on because you can register yourself onto that system. And as soon as you register onto that system, you can go into the bank systems and all that because mobile banking is coming on quite um, good in South Africa and worldwide. So they register onto the identity management platform and then they register at the bank through their apps or whatever they want. Most of the banks are starting to go that way. So the person is registered as a user on it because the trustworthy source is the identity management solution. They then go and apply for a loan of 100 or 200, let's say 1,000 rand, and the bank sends it through to the credit bureaus. The credit bureaus pick it up. They see that this person has got no previous, any profile of that, they send it back that the person uh, has got no profile and that it might be a risk, but they create a profile on the system. So now the synthetic identity has been created, a profile on the credit bureaus. The banks obviously says no for the first apply, uh, uh, applicant, but after a month the guy goes and he applies again for another loan, 1,000, 2,000 rand, and most probably this is then paid over to him because the credit bureaus see that this guy's got a profile, it's clean, and the bank pays over the loan. So now you've got a person that does not exist that's got a 2000 loan. What they then do is they nurture this loan. So they pay it off in the time or, or quicker, say six months, and then they apply for a new loan. Because of the credit history that's been created, the person can then apply for, say, a 10000 or 15000 loan. This is also nurtured. But what they do is they don't just send in one identity, synthetic identity. They actually are creating hundreds of thousands of synthetic identities per month, which are then pushed through this system that I've just mentioned. And after two years or three years, they might have, say, a million guys on their system. And they, these guys, these synthetic identities, each allowed to, to borrow, say, 200, 300,000 rand, buy a house or whatever. <clears throat> and then they go into the system and they buy these and, big, huge, expensive stuff, or they take out these big loans, and they don't repay it. So if you think about it, if you've got a million people taking out a loan for 200,000 rand at any bank in South Africa currently, and they don't pay it back, that's going to take that bank down. David, you've, you've just shocked me. This is matrix stuff. This is, this is, this is scary stuff. You're telling me that somebody can create a synthetic ID simply by reporting something to a some other organization which will register that name and ID as being an individual that's being prejudiced. The person will then use the details online to maybe apply for something, not necessarily get that, but now because they've applied for it and not necessarily got it first time around, that ID is now floating about on all of our different systems. Correct. That is absolutely bizarre. What has been done to prevent this? 
currently basically I'm not seeing anything being done. The most, the biggest thing that everybody's having is this hype about self-registration onto identity protection platforms. That's where the problem actually starts because anybody can register himself as many times as he, he wants to. We actually did it on one of the systems. Um, a friend of mine registered himself seven times under different people on one of those platforms. That just shows you that if you start creating uh, synthetic identities on that, how big can you go? Now, how do we prevent this from happening? Because this isn't targeting us now as individuals like we spoke about earlier in traditional identity theft. We're now talking about um, sophisticated syndicates creating non-existent people. How it will impact on us is that, like you said, if they build up, it could even be a staged attack by an organization such as Anonymous, where they want to stage an attack on banks, and over the years they patiently build up all these identities. They then get loans through all these identities. When these loans are recalled, they cannot be paid, and that bank can literally crash, and there can be a run on that bank. This is actually what you're talking is economic warfare or economic terrorism. How do we prevent this from happening? The only way to prevent it, and this is where... It's very important from our forensic side of the old fingerprints and all that and why I trust it. The only way to do this is that if you register a person on a, on a system, a, a identity protection platform, it's got to be done according forensic to forensic protocol. You've got to register that single existing real world human being onto that system because through that you can then have a digital identity of the individual and you can reference it back to that single real world human being. Well, thank you for that, because what you've just told me is that no matter how futuristic things are becoming, the fact remains is a human being remains a human being, and a part of that human being still needs to be used as a means to an end to prove their identity. We're going to take a quick break. It's going to be the last break of the day. When we're going to come back, we're going to talk about how you can prevent yourself from becoming a victim of identity theft. You're listening to Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas. We're chatting to David Jacobs about the the scourge of identity theft. We've spoken about how important fingerprints were in the fight against crime, how things have changed over the years and bodies have been submitted. Bodies have been found, abandoned, have had their fingerprints taken, identities created, and insurance policies paid out on them. And, of course, we all know how if you've lost your wallet over the years, somebody could have perhaps used your identity book in the old days, just replaced your photo by, by pasting over your photo with another, po- with, with another photo and opening accounts. But we moved into a world of matrix, in my in my opinion, where David told us about some incredible things relating to synthetic identity creation, where people or syndicates or, or black hat hatters, hackers are actually creating non-existent people, which could actually cripple banks, etc. But that doesn't impact on you and me right now. What does impact on you and me right now is the fact that somebody may come across our details at the rubbish dump. They may go um, dump diving outside our very own house on the day that uh, the the um, refuse removal are coming through to, to collect our refuse. So what do we do, David, to protect ourselves from identity theft? Oh, that's a, currently, that's a very hard thing to do because... Everything that you have is already available on the on the internet in the dark web. Everything of you is already there. 
Um, the, the only solution that there is is to actually make your identity worthless to anybody but yourself, that only you can verify against yourself, and that every, even if somebody else is trying to use your identity, they, that it's worthless. They can't do anything with it. So that's where the start lies. Um, a very important thing is that you've got to link your human body to to the identity that's in the cyber world, that digital identity, because that's where everything is. You're a digital identity on Facebook or whatever. That's not who you are, so it's a different persona. But um, the most important part, like I just mentioned, you've got to link that human body, human being, to that identity. That's the one part. So the solution is to have a referenced library to where you've got a, your your identity in, and that only you can verify yourself against that which is in there, the master identity, and that any company that wants to use that can only get a yes or no response out of that, so that they can't do anything with your body or with, with your identity. So in essence, that's where it starts: is to make the person's identity worthless for anybody else, and that's where you link the. It's all. It's more than just. Protecting your identity by hiding your ID, not giving your credentials when you've got, oh, when I came in here, I had to give my, my uh, driver's license. So that's already, my whole identity is on there. My ID number is on there, my name, surname, whatever. There's even a fingerprint on there. But does it, is it me? Can they prove it? I don't think so, because the systems have already been corrupted. So David, I got a fright for a sec. When you said make sure that they don't want to use your ID, I thought you wanted us all to go run out and rack up debt and get judgments no, so no, that no, our no, identity no. would be worthless. <laughs> so what you're saying is there should be a way where the physical world meets the cyber world. Is there something happening to link these two worlds? We've created a solution in that fashion that works on the forensic part because of the, obviously the forensic, um, forensic expert that, that we've got in our system and linking it into a real system with order trials and then at the end of the day to verify that the person's identity 100% fingerprints. Obviously we collect the facial and uh, we can do voice and all that but the, the most important part is the fingerprint biometric, collecting it correctly and you t- storing it correctly to verify that person's authenticity. Once you have that fingerprint, will you physically have to use it when going into the banks, going into credit houses, etc.? What if you're now doing everything via the Internet, like you've said? You know, you can apply for a loan online. You can even apply for housing finance online. Will there be a way for them to physically check you? Yes, well, physically is one part because everything is moving into this like we, we know we're living in the cyber world. Um, there's this uh, um, blockchain, which is a very good effective way to, to create the self-sovereign identity everybody is speaking about. But the self-sovereign identity can also be a lot of different identities. So we've created out of this where we collect the person's identity, we've collect, uh, created this referenced self-sovereign identity. This means that the cyber world person can be linked to the real world human being, even if you're presenting your information via your cell phone, even if you're doing a multi-factor authentication. It's always linked to this one single human being. That's where where the digital world can then actually be active in doing a quick reference check of the person because that digital identity is now linked to a real-world human being. Now, David, you keep on referring to we um, have introduced, we are doing this. Who is we? What is the organization? The company is called Diverse Authentication Library. 
where we basically provide the, informa- the, the individual a secure place to protect their identities. And only you can verify yourself against it. Um, this is a non-biased uh, library. The information or the data that's in there belongs to the owner of that identity who created the master identity. So this is a custodian uh, information database, which only can provide a yes or no if this is the real world human being. Would your two biggest credit bureaus in South Africa make use of a library such as this? Is that the ultimate aim? I think that um, there's a lot of movement away from credit bureaus by by a lot of people in the self-sovereign identity field where they actually say, your information belongs to yourself. Why can't you be paid like the credit bureaus is being paid to give your information to another um, institution? Because currently, obviously, if you do a credit check, they check it against one of the credit bureaus, which... Um, might or might not have the correct information on it. It could be of somebody else's information on there that they're checking against. But if you've got it on you, then obviously you can be paid for it. And that's just where I think the, the cyber world and credit bureaus are going to, I think, not cross. It's got to be a, a bit of one extension where you carry your information with yourself and you can present it to whoever you want to. So basically you're doing the catchword at the moment. You're disrupting the the whole identity industry by introducing a new measure because everybody has become reliant on the credit bureaus being the custodians of identity. It's not home affairs. It's not the banks. If anybody requires information, they go via any one of 2,000-odd credit bureaus in South Africa who buy their information from two primary credit bureaus who in turn have a quid pro quo with their licensees. So if they have a company that buys information from them, they ask that same company to share the consumer's profile with them and repayment programs, etc., so that they can score that person. And every South African, whether they know it or not, actually has a score on these two credit uh, credit bureaus, one's known as a Fair Isaac, one's known as a as a Delphi scoring mechanism. So you're disrupting it. You've introduced something completely different, where people can take ownership of their identity and how that identity can be shared with other potential organisations that they may want to have a relationship with. I think that uh, we're not disrupting that. It's already been disrupted by a lot of institutions that does this. That already provides that. We, our disruption is that we link the real world human being to that information or to that identity that's carrying that. Um, I think that I've asked the question before and I'm, I'm quite aware of what the Poppy Act and all that and the national credit regulation and all that is. When did I give the, my, the, the credit bureaus the right to store my information and when did I give them the authorization to sell that on? It's a very big question for me personally, because I can't remember that I actually did that. Nor do I, and it's, it's, a, it's a question that everybody should be asking because it has a direct impact on their life as a consumer, as somebody who may need something, as somebody who may be prejudiced as a result of that information. This has been an exceptionally fascinating conversation. How do people find out more about your organization? Uh, they can go onto our website, www.dal. Uh, um, hash global dot co dot zero. DAL dash global. What the uh, hyphen hyphen global dot co dot zero. So, and what will they find on that website? Well, they find the information as to what we do, how we do the protection, how we do the authentication. I think if you look at what you'll see there is that we are really serious about um, collecting 
your identity as evidence and protecting that up to the highest level. So I think that's the most important factor that you'll see that there's three different ways of verifying or authenticating identity on our system. Those three ways are? Well, the one is obviously fingerprints. And because there's a, there's a, there's a thing in the biometric fingerprints that's called false acceptance, acceptance rate and false rejection rate. And due to that, we also have fingerprint experts in the background that can verify that in a fingerprint that needs to be checked is really the person or not the person. Then we've got the multi-factor authentication, which works on about seven levels. So you've got much more than just a two-level two authentication. And then we've got our digital signed at the station that works on the blockchain. David, that's a lot to take in. I invite our guests to visit the website. I will be posting the website um, on our Facebook group, which is Confidential Brief Radio Show, so that they can see more about it and they can visit the site and find out more about um, what it is you do. Thank you so much for educating me and our listeners today. Yeah, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks for you. It's been a, it's been one hell of a learning curve. And the thing that scared me the most is we really are in the matrix, especially with synthetic IDs. That's going to eat us hard. I'll be back next week, and next week is a show you cannot miss. I'm not telling you who the guest is because the guest at this point in time is in a program that kind of protects that individual. So that's all I'm saying, but it's a not-to-miss show. Make sure you tune in to Confidential Brief next week, Monday, 12 p.m., where you will hear from the horse's mouth what's been going on in South Africa behind the scenes with state capture.